0: Before I get to this week's podcast, I want to tell you about another Radio National podcast, Soul Search, with Meredith Lake. Now, even if you're not a believer, you might be interested in some of the questions they regularly ask What do we believe? How do we find meaning? And how does it matter in our lives and communities? Ideas and conversations that might just surprise you. You'll find Soul Search wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When you do all mail-in voting ballots, you're asking for fraud. People steal them out of mailboxes people print them and from
2: font size issues to malfunctioning displays we've reported for years a host of problems from these touchscreen voting devices
3: and, and what might be, be a political users. candidate's worst nightmare one man in Mississippi recorded a video of an electronic voting machine malfunctioning
2: it is not letting me vote for who i want to vote for
0: for decades us elections have been marked by debates over the reliability and integrity of voting methods in the upcoming presidential election, US citizens will cast their ballots in a myriad of ways, from mail-in voting to computerised voting machines. And if it's a close election, each of these ways is likely to be challenged in court. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. In Australia, we're used to all voting the same way, whether you're in Perth, Darwin or Hobart. The Australian Electoral Commission conducts and supervises federal elections across the country. But in America, it's a very different story. Each of the 50 states independently conducts its own election, including the presidential election. So voters in different states, or even different counties, often use completely different methods of casting their vote. So what impact has this decentralised system had on voting in America? First, let's look at how Americans voted in the early 1800s. Douglas Jones is Associate Professor of Computer Science at the University of Iowa and the author of Broken Ballots. Will your vote count?
1: Well, in some counties, it was viva voce voting, which is to say... You simply walk up to the clerk of elections and call out, out loud your selections and the clerk writes them down on the voter roll, trying to keep a running count for each office. In some counties, it was paper ballot system. The typical paper ballots in the 1840s, the ballots were printed by the political parties, but the voter was free to strike names and squeeze in handwritten names if they wanted. And that system persisted until the 1890s.
0: The only exception to these methods was during the Civil War, between 1861 and 1865, when some northern states developed a system of absentee voting for soldiers. Dr Don Inbody from Texas State University is the author of The Soldier Vote, War, Politics and the Ballot in America.
2: The first widespread use of mail-in voting happened in the American Civil War in the election of 1862 and then the presidential election of 1864. It was hotly debated, mainly on partisan grounds. Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, had just been elected president in the election of November 1860. And Republicans had taken over Congress and had taken over many of the state legislatures in that election. But the Democrats were still strong in some areas. So when the 1862 midterm election and then subsequently the 1864 presidential election came along, the Democrats were staunchly against it, but the Republicans were staunchly for it because of the assumption, largely correctly at that time that the soldiers who were away were going to vote Republican. And in those states that had Democratic majorities in their legislature, they never allowed soldier mail-in voting, but the states that had Republicans in charge did.
0: And in that those elections, do we have any idea how many soldiers actually used the mail-in voting as an option for voting and if there were any problems associated with that?
2: Yeah, we know approximately how many. There were, you know, some hundreds of thousands of soldiers, but that was out of several million. Some of the problems, in the case of Vermont, some of those ballots didn't get back in time and weren't counted. But for the most part, it went reasonably well. Different states, they had three different methods that they used during the American Civil War in the 1860s. So the three methods, mail-in voting that we have today, proxy voting, and then sending commissioners to actually vote in the field.
0: While absentee voting was a success, voter fraud in many polling booths was an issue through the 1800s.
1: My favourite story of this is from Harrison County, Texas, where in the post-Civil War era, the federal government was attempting to allow blacks to vote and the Harrison County, Texas elected officials were doing everything they could to prevent it. And eventually, things reached the point where federal marshals were sent in, but the state managed to argue in court that the federal government had no authority over state elections. So the county was allowed to install two ballot boxes in each polling place one for the federal ballot, which only had federal races on it, and one for the state and local ballot, which had the other races. Usually, we combine all of it onto one ballot, but the result was interesting because all the observers agreed that the same voters had showed up at both ballot boxes. The stated local ballot box, however, had 30% more ballots in it at the end of the day, and that almost certainly represents ballot box stuffing. Once people began to realize the extent of fraud, demands for reform came, and immediately technologists began inventing
0: And this is where Australia enters the story. In 1856, Australia invented a ballot which allowed the voters' vote to remain anonymous, a ballot paper printed on white paper by the government.
1: Not long after South Australia and Tasmania introduced the Australian paper ballot, we began to see calls in the United States for the introduction of that technology I think Cincinnati, Ohio was the first local municipality to move to using Australian paper ballot methods, and they described it as that. And then in 1892, Congress stepped in and required the use of the Australian paper ballot or equivalent. And at this point, several inventors came up with machinery that claimed, perhaps correctly, to embody the spirit of the Australian ballot, notably a man named Myers in New York.
4: It wasn't until 1892 when another inventor, Jacob Myers, The curtain would wrap around the voter. The
1: voter would pull a lever that then moved the curtain around so you had secrecy. The idea of a secret ballot was also something that was fairly new in the late 1800s. Most Americans, up until the 1880s, dropped a paper ballot into a box and it might be colored and so people could tell how you were voting. The Myers machine was initially so big that it was installed permanently in the local polling places. The voter would enter the booth and press buttons to indicate the candidates the voter wanted to vote for. And then on leaving the booth, The act of leaving the booth, opening the door, would register the counts for those buttons on the counters and would also reset all the the mechanism for the next voter. The mechanisms were as dismayingly complex as a piano or a power loom at a textile factory, which is to say, in terms of 19th century technology, they were about as complicated as machines ever got. And in fact, what happened is they took the authority for the honesty of the election away from the local polling place officials to a significant extent and put it in the hands of the technicians in the county voting machine office who maintained the complex mechanisms of these machines. And of course, the insides of the machine were invisible to the public. And really, who knows what's going on in there when there are so many thousands of gears and cogs and levers and pins and push rods inside the machine. It's just a dismayingly complex mechanism.
0: The machines may have been complex, but according to Stephen Ann Solibahare, professor of government at Harvard University, many Americans felt that they were more secure than paper ballots and they had the added advantage of being able to count the votes incredibly quickly.
4: There was a controversial election in 1872 in the United States, where it was just very difficult to secure the paper ballot. A big 600 pound or 900 pound voting machine just felt secure The other aspect of it was the speed of tabulation. It was very slow to count ballots. And when the Americans vote on election night, they don't just vote on one office, they vote for usually three federal offices six or seven statewide offices, multiple county and local offices and then ballot measures which are questions about like state taxes and state constitutional amendments. So you'll vote on 20 to 25 things and it would take a long time to count, so just sped up the counting. So speed and security of the count has been a big driving factor.
0: As the lever machine took over polling booths across America, the debate over absentee voting picked up speed, first in World War I and then again in World War II.
2: By World War I, most states had some kind of a law allowing absentee voting, not just for soldiers, but for other people. They were kind of limited. They had to be on official business out of the state or something along those lines. The U.S. didn't get very involved in it because we didn't have a presidential election during the war until the tail end of the war. But by World War II in 1940, the United States enacted the first draft, peacetime draft. And then it suddenly realized on the part of several Democrats in Congress that we were gonna have large numbers of soldiers away from home. And we had an election coming up in 1942 and then subsequently a 1944 election. And they started pressing for uh, absentee voting Again, that was a partisan divide, Republicans largely voting against it, Democrats largely for it.
0: And did that occur? Were absentee votes allowed for soldiers during World War II? And were there any problems associated with it?
2: There were absentee ballots allowed. There weren't any real problems. We know that several million absentee ballots were requested, and we have a sense that probably half of those were returned. There are no documented specific problems with it, other than some soldiers arguing that they had requested a ballot and it didn't show up, or ballots that showed up late in getting back to where they couldn't be counted.
0: And do we see a similar pattern in the Korean and Vietnam War?
2: Yes, By then, states were starting to actually think in terms of not just soldiers being able to vote, but all citizens being able to vote by absentee. By the mid-1950s, though, it was starting to realize that American citizens who were living overseas, which had never been a big issue before, but post-World War II, the United States now had civilians, both business and government officials, all over the world, and they were taking their families. And suddenly they realized that states weren't allowing them to vote. So by the 60s and the 70s, finally, they got Congress to pass a law saying that even American citizens who are living overseas, who may or may not have any intention of ever going back to the United States, but maintain their citizenship, have the right to vote, and states have to send them a ballot. This
0: is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're tracing the history of voting methods in America. The 1960s also saw the introduction of a new type of voting machine, the punch card machine. It was smaller and cheaper than the lever machine.
4: There are many automatic devices in the key punch. If a number of cards need to be punched and all have the same fields, a program unit is used to efficiently organize the machine.
1: Lever machines took over the marketplace, and were extraordinarily widely accepted. However, technological change starting in the 1950s began to spur new inventions. Joseph Harris, one of the great election reformers of the 1930s, invented the punch card ballot. The mechanical voting machines were 700 pound monsters. They were expensive mechanisms Punch card voting machines, if you had a computer with a punch card reader available, were dirt cheap. Punch cards were everywhere in the computer industry, so getting custom-made punch cards was
4: very cheap. And the idea of it all is to set up the punching of the fields of a particular group of cards with the same format and automatically duplicate information to appear on each card and skip quickly over all the columns that don't contain any data.
1: The fundamental problem with the punch card machine is that to make that low cost, it was based on the idea that you would have a card which was pre-scored, where each of the possible voting positions was scored so that the little rectangle of cardboard in that position was weakly attached to the cardboard around it. And you would vote by pressing a stylus through a template that had the candidate names on it to punch out one of these little rectangles of cardboard. And the technology mostly worked, but in some small percentage of the cases, when you push the stylus through, it would not completely detach that piece of cardboard. And that little piece of cardboard would dangle like a trapdoor and might swing closed again and lodge as if it had never been punched. There was a major study of the technology in the 1970s by the National Institute of Standards and Technology And that study recommended the discontinuation of this technology because of it. The guy who did the study said he went and observed the counting of punch card ballots and several elections. And what he observed is as the ballots went through the card reader, there would be pieces of Chad, pieces of the punched out cardboard accumulating on the floor and around the card reader. And these must have come from somewhere. Were they loose pieces that had been originally represented partially punched out votes? Were they pieces that were being dislodged by the counting process? No one knew, but it was very apparent that this was evidence of something seriously wrong. But the machines were cheap. They were popular. No one wanted to raise any questions about the integrity of elections because elected officials really don't want you to ask any questions about the technology that put them in office. By 1980, punch cards were edging out lever machines as the most popular voting technology because every time someone replaced a lever machine, punch cards looked like they were the cheapest. By 2000, most of the votes cast in the United States were cast on punch card ballots.
0: But the credibility of the punch card machine was completely undermined in the 2000 presidential election.
3: A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column.
1: Turn the lights down. The party just got wilder. Florida goes to Mr Bush. Bush wins. Headline of the hour... Everyone was watching when this very close election in Florida was controversial. And there were a large number of problems that were difficult to explain in the press. But the problem with Chad and the problem with the Votomatic punch card ballot, that was the easy story for journalists to latch onto. While there were widespread problems with other voting technologies used in Florida, the focus was on the punch card ballots in Palm Beach County.
4: As both campaigns launched lawsuits over the disputed results. The question of who will be the next president is right
3: after on her that deck. election, after that fiasco, Congress passed something called the Help America Vote Act, which gives money to each state to improve their infrastructure
0: for voting. Brittany Gibson is a writing fellow at the American Prospect, an
3: online progressive political and public policy magazine. That infrastructure could mean training more staffers, being able to pay more to attract more recruits. But a lot of that money has gone to machine improvement, buying new machines altogether, because that was the big problem in the 2000 election.
4: The Help America Vote Act had a provision for buying out all of the lever machines and punch card technology. So it provided funds for the counties and states forbid their use in federal elections. And that Eliminated the use of those technologies.
0: So, what were the key forms of technologies that were brought in after the Help America Vote Act?
4: One system is what's called optically scanned paper, which is a paper ballot next to the name of the candidate. There's an open oval, and if you want to vote for that candidate, you fill in that oval with a black pen. And then those are read into a scanner that counts the ballots very quickly, and it's also Nice because you can go back and check the consistency between the actual paper ballots that were cast and the final tabulation. That's actually been the fastest growing of all the technologies, and it's now the dominant form of technology used. The other technology is direct recording electronic voting machines, or DREs.
1: Fully computerized voting machines came on the market in the late 1970s And with the election of 2000 and the complete collapse of the punch card market in response to the problems with hanging Chad in Florida, the totally computerized voting machines that were typically based on laptop computer technology lurched from being a minority small thing to the big hot new item. And you voted typically by touching the screen and it would light up with boxes where you could touch and it would make an X where you touched. And the fact that it made an X where you touched was somehow supposed to assure you that it also recorded your vote that way. There have been instances where it didn't. It is not letting me vote for who
3: I wanna vote for. That voter, Ethan Peterson, was trying to select Bill Waller Jr., but the machine in Lafayette County repeatedly selected Tate Reeves instead. Voters in Calhoun County reported two other malfunctioning machines at two separate precincts.
1: As these machines became widespread in the early 2000s, there was also emerging concern in the computer science community about their integrity. Basically, the more you know about programming, the less you trust programmers to get it right.
0: So do we know in the upcoming election in November, what percentage of people will be voting using these kinds of machines?
1: Most of the direct recording voting machines have been retired. The controversy over them led to the introduction of what were called voter verified paper trail machines, where The direct recording machine had attached to it as sort of an outrigger, a printer that would print a copy of your ballot as you press the cast ballot button and allow you to notice if there was any discrepancy. These in principle can be audited. Studies of actual voters on these machines show that hardly anyone verifies them effectively. So in fact, the presence of a printed copy, which in principle could be checked by the voter, doesn't mean it was checked. But the other thing is that The newest press from the industry to get something that costs a lot of money and will earn a lot of profit has been for what are called ballot marking devices. and These machines present the ballot on a touchscreen user interface and then print out the ballot on a sheet of paper, and the voter can look at that paper before depositing it in a scanner. That paper can be scanned, and there is evidence that these are checked more reliably by voters
0: These machines, are they owned by the various counties and states?
4: Most places, the counties own them. There are some instances where a private vendor will own the machine and therefore be able to upgrade it. But most of them it's owned by the counties. But the software is proprietary. So the software is something that is created by the company.
0: So almost in essence, you could say the system or the process of voting in many counties has actually been privatised because it's run and controlled by these private companies.
4: In some ways, though, there are the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is a federal agency, has developed all of the criteria that the software must follow and so forth. So there's been a fair amount of standardisation and regulation of the companies. The companies have always had a presence in voting and voting technology since the technologies really took off in the 1960s. There's been some degree of a kind of public-private relationship that's developed.
0: This is the AccuVote TSX. It's used in 18 different states, eight of which are swing states. It's gonna start rebooting and now you have full admin access on this machine so you can disrupt the election you can disrupt people's confidence in the election when you think about admin access you can think about like keys to the castle
4: people started by hook or by crook getting voting machines and bringing them to this annual hackers convention in Las Vegas where people get together and try to hack operating systems and hack computers and hack vending machines and you know anything in sight
0: Tom Hartman is the author of The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back.
4: And hacking the voting machines became a real high status thing. And the younger you were, the more newsworthy it was. And the last three or four years, every single year, within a 15 minute period, these voting machines have been successfully hacked or various voting machines have been successfully hacked by people under the age of 16. The last
1: time around, I believe that the Russians didn't pull the trigger on any of their technological hacking of the machines. They found that hacking the electorate was probably easier than hacking the machines. This time around, I cross my fingers and hope they don't hack the machines.
2: In places like North Fulton County, which are wealthy, there were more machines than anyone could ever use. In black neighborhoods, there were a quarter of the number of machines that were needed to service the population.
1: There are definitely places where the number of voting machines available is inadequate, and I believe inadequate by design in order to decrease the count of votes from those areas. This has been a problem since the dawn of voting machines, and the lack of standards for the number of machines per person doesn't
0: help. At the same time, states were investing in more sophisticated voting machines. There were a few states who moved towards a system of universal mail-in voting.
3: Voting by mail started, or at least states started doing their transition about 20 years ago. It was either Washington or Oregon were the first states to begin that transition. It was followed by Utah, Colorado, Hawaii, and now California in transition.
2: The way the complete mail voting works, if you're registered, to vote, then they will send you a ballot. In the states that don't have this all mail-in system, you have to request the absentee ballot. But in those states, if you are registered, they mail it to you and then you have to get it back. And the different states have different methods. You can either walk the ballot in and hand it in or just stick it in the mail. They've had essentially no problems with it. In fact, what Oregon and Colorado and Utah have discovered is that the turnout rate has actually increased. And despite what you might hear from some partisans, that turnout rate does not appear to benefit one political party over the other.
3: There hasn't been significant voter fraud the way the president has described it. There have been some secretaries of state motivated to find this fraud there was a secretary of state in the early 2000s his name was Chris Kobach he was from Kansas and he developed an entire software for cross-matching so a ballot would come in and he would cross-match the name on that ballot to his roles And he found thousands of cases of fraud. But when each one of those instances was investigated, it was found that the fraud that was being picked up by his software was a Fred Smith senior had died and they had received a ballot from Fred Smith, but it was actually Fred Smith Jr. It was his son. So what the president has described has not ever been seen to come to fruition in a U.S. election. So why is President
0: Trump so opposed to mail-in or absentee voting?
4: The distinctive thing about an absentee or mail ballot is there's more of a paper trail about how the vote was cast. So steering his voters away from vote by mail is potentially a strategy to foreclose the possibility of their voters' ballots being contested after the election. They would like more of the Democrats' ballots contestable after the election if there's a controversy like there was in 2000.
1: All of this attempt to discredit voting by mail leaves me quite worried because the fact is I think that's our best choice during the COVID epidemic. I don't see a way to run polling places for mass voting when you've got so many people who are vulnerable and an epidemic raging.
4: If on election night we are facing, say, four or five states where Biden and Trump are within a half a percentage point of each other then we will likely have a protracted set of legal conflicts in each of those states, in separate courts, trying to resolve how the ballots were counted and cast. That is the situation that happened in 2000. It all focused on Florida, but Wisconsin, Iowa, New Mexico were all ripe for the same kind of controversy. And that's, I think, the concern that people have this time, that we might be headed toward another situation like that.
0: Stephen Ann Solibar-Hare, Professor of Government at Harvard University. My other guests, Douglas Jones, Associate Professor of Computer Science, University of Iowa. Brittany Gibson from The American Prospect. Tom Hartman, author of The Hidden History of the War on Voting. And Don Inbody from Texas State University. You might be interested to know that the ACT has used electronic voting for their legislative assembly election since 2001. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National.